Good morning. I don't know if this is going to bother any of you. Actually, some of you, it wouldn't bother because you would not hear this. I know some of you. I know, I've, I've, my boys and I used to joke around. One of the brothers, who shall not be identified by name, but whose initials were Andrew, um, <laughs> was a tough one to wake up. And some of the things that he rigged up and the recordings that he made. But that alarm signifies something in every one of our days. It signifies waking up. Now let's do an instant replay here. Let's go back right before your alarm rang this morning. Were you breathing? Mm -hmm. Yep. Was your heart beating? Yep. You might have even been imagining, dreaming. You were existing for sure, but you weren't going about your day. You weren't living. Now let's move from the literal to the metaphorical. And let's move from the metaphorical to the theological. Let's move from the theological to the gospel. All of us know what it means to breathe. We know what it means for our hearts to beat. But do we know what it means to live? To live according to the original plan and purpose that we were made for? Do we know what it means to awaken? A couple of thousand years ago, there were a couple of brothers that lived on the shore of Lake Galilee. Some call it the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty big lake. It's in what we now know as Israel in the Middle East. These two brothers were named James and John. They were teenagers. They were teenagers who loved life. They lived large. In fact, they had a nickname. They were called Sons of Thunder. Now, I don't know why they got that. Is it because of their temper, or because of their laughter, or because of their exuberance, or because of the pace of their lives? Could be all of the above. But these two brothers loved doing life together. One day they were helping their dad. Their, their dad's name was Zebedee. He was a fisherman on the, the shores of Galilee. And they were helping him repair some nets. And along came a rabbi. They might have heard about him. We're not real sure. The rabbi was probably around 30 years old. His name was Yeshua. And he already had a reputation in a lot of those parts. He developed a conversation with them and a rapport with them to the degree that he ended up saying to them, I want you to follow me, which is what a rabbi would do. It was an invitation for a young man to become one of his Talmudim, one of his followers, for him to, to instruct and to teach and to model. 
They knew there was something significant about him, but they had no idea. But they followed him. They became really close to him. Actually, later in Jesus' life, it was described that the, the brothers and Peter were his intimate circle. John, of those three, was very possibly the, the closest to him. It was John that was leaning against Jesus' shoulder that Thursday night before Jesus was crucified, and they had that last supper together. It was actually John to whom Jesus was speaking when Jesus was hanging on the cross and said, I want you to take care of my mother. So this guy, John, was a close friend of Jesus. He, he watched him. Day and night, he observed. For three years, Jesus speak. He got to know how he thought, who had observed him laugh and love and heal and teach and walk and rest and pray and joke and worship. And then came that awfulness of the crucifixion. Dream shattered. Three days later, dreams resurrected with Christ's bodily, physical, literal resurrection from the dead. Forty days of instruction by Jesus to his disciples about the implications of all that they had seen. And then Jesus was ascended and the disciples were, were spread out. John became one of the leaders in the church in Asia Minor. And one by one, his friends were murdered, martyred, because of their belief in Jesus. And eventually, John was the last man standing. He was an old man. Last week, we got a great introduction to him through Vernon's message on John the Revelator. And it wasn't that John didn't get persecuted. He did, uh, but he didn't get martyred as far as we know. But he was exiled to the island of Patmos. He wrote a book called The Revelation, but he'd also written three, uh, four, four other letters, uh, three epistles called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and a gospel. Uh, in Greek, it's Evangelion. It's the glad tidings. So as an old man, John sits down under the inspiration and movement and enablement of the Holy Spirit and puts quill to parchment and begins to write. And he writes as a son of thunder. He writes with passion. He's not writing a religious 
instruction book. He's not writing to help some people have something to read, to feel religious on a Sunday morning when they got nothing to do. He's writing with fire in his quill, fire in his eyes, fire in his heart, with a burning desire that we would get something. You want to know what he wanted us to get? <laughs> Don't overwhelm me there. <laughs> Do you want to know what he wanted us to get? Yeah. In John chapter 20, verse 31, you've heard me reference this before, you'll hear me reference it again. He says, there are a lot of things that Jesus did, there are a lot of things that Jesus taught, but these things, I've written my gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Do you know what John 20, 31 is? Right here. John 20, 31 is to any man, woman, boy, or girl who knows what it means to sleepwalk, which we all do because we're, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. The scriptures make very clear, and so do our consciences. And we live our lives eating and talking and relating, living, but muted, sleepwalking, going through the motions, hearts beating, lungs breathing, but just existing, trying to extract some purpose, trying to extract meaning, but all the time thinking it's out there and I haven't quite figured out what is life for. And it's for you and me that John writes this wake-up call. And you know why he wrote it? Because Jesus gave him a wake-up call. Now go back to that verse. Look at it a little bit more carefully. If you're brand new with us, this will be new to you. If not, it'll be review. John 20, 31 is in two parts, really. He says, I've written my gospel for two reasons. Number one, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We'll call that orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right belief. It's what churches and religious circles all focus a lot on, appropriately so. Let's make sure that we have a correct understanding of God and uh, the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and uh, what salvation is, and what, what, what death is about, and what eternity is about, and with the scripture, all of, all of that, and at the centerpiece of all of that is that Jesus is Messiah, the Christ. It's, it's, it's right belief. It's doctrinal statements. And John said, I want you to get that. It's very important. Get it. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But he says, there's also another reason I'm writing this, is that by believing you'll have life in his name. It's not just for orthodoxy that he wrote this gospel. It's for vibrancy. It's not just for our right belief, but for our fullness of living. And far too many churches care about orthodoxy, but 
walk out of church saying, yep, we learned something new and it's all cerebral and we sign the dotted line and saying, that's our belief system. And uh, we might get to the point of saying, and I have an assurance of forgiveness of sins and I'm headed to heaven, but there's nothing different about my days. And John's invitation is let there be a difference. It's not orthodoxy or vibrancy, it's both and. There can be dead orthodoxy, and dead orthodoxy is when I got all the right beliefs, but it's not changing the way that I live. It's, uh, the, 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 my belief about the gospel is not enable me to dance to, as a human being to the glory of God. This awakening is for people that are unbelievers, not yet believers in Jesus, that's some of you, and a lot more of you probably are already believers. This applies to us both. It's a wake-up call to all of us. If you're not a believer, the first thing you got to grapple with is the orthodoxy part, the right belief. Is Jesus historically validated? Is who he claimed to be? Is the resurrection real? Did he really die on the cross for me? Is he the one that can restore me to the Father? Those questions are all absolutely absolutely critical. But the reason that we need to grasp them is to enable us for that second part, that vibrancy. There are plenty of people here that have trusted Jesus as King and Savior. What difference does it make in the way that we do our taxes, in the way that we do our parties, in the way that we do our ball games, the way that we do our visits to the funeral home or the doctor's office, the way that we walk into a courtroom, the way that we walk into a classroom? What difference does the gospel make? There was something about this son of thunder that wanted to make sure that we understood something. Then it was understanding that Jesus came not just to shape us to have right belief, but to free us to live, to live in a way that glorified God, not happy clappy, not self-actualization, not positive mental attitude, but to actually awaken and live to His glory instead of just exist doing some painkillers and distractions here and there. I had a woman come up to me about uh, oh, a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a conference up in New York City. She was in her 80s. She came up to me in tears, Arlene and me both. We were both standing there. She walks up and she said, I've been a believer since I was a young woman. A believer in Jesus. I've been a Christian. But I've always been reticent to share my faith. And it finally occurred to me these last couple of days what the problem is. Tears streaming down your face. She said it. I've just felt weird about wanting people to adopt my right belief, my orthodoxy. I, I, didn't, I didn't put together the so what of the gospel, that it's for vibrancy. And she said, I'm unleashed to be able to invite people into the vibrancy that Jesus wants to enable. One of our worship team. She said, the woman said, I've, it's, uh, it's been an awakening experience for me. I remember when she said that, I thought about a movie I saw um, many years ago. I think it was back in the 1800s when I saw the movie. It was uh, called Awakenings, starring Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. It was based on the true story of Dr. Oliver Sacks, a neurologist who did some experimentation with patients who had been in long-term comas, and then they would wake up. They would awaken. And this woman standing before me said, 
I've awakened. I was a follower of Jesus, so I, I was awakened from an orthodoxy sense, but I wasn't awakened from a vibrancy sense. One of our worship teams sent me an email so excited about the, this new vision that God has called us to, this vision of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And this whole notion of vibrancy and orthodoxy played in. He says, I, as I was praying, I had the mental image of this long, long wall and tons of people that were walking along it or sitting next to it. But then there was a gate and nobody was going through it. And I started, he said, I was trying to to, to kind of picture that in the context of orthodoxy and vibrancy and began to wonder, is, is the wall orthodoxy that, that outlines our faith? And this is my words, not his, but I think that's a, it's a great image that the, the, the orthodoxy frames our, 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 our walk with Christ, our right belief, but the vibrancy is what uh, is, the, is the gate that invites us into the actual experience of the gospel, not just a knowledge of the gospel. Uh, when was the last time you invited someone to church? Don't, don't answer that, I'm just asking. I think it's very possible that the length of time might correlate to this orthodoxy vibrancy thing. The longer it's been since I've invited someone to church, maybe is the better the indication that I'm placing more emphasis on orthodoxy without vibrancy. Because you see, when the vibrancy is there, you want people to experience the dance with you. But too many churches approach people outside saying, come and believe like we do. Is John saying that? Yes, but not only that. He's saying... Could you come believe what we believe so that you may have life in his name? And that's where we get this vision that we, during this season, want to be about engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. We've been talking about it. We've been framing it. And now we want to go through, take a journey through John's gospel that could take a while. Take a look at this gospel that leads up to that climactic statement at the end. Everything that I've written has been so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Substantive orthodoxy, understanding that the solidity of the historicity, the validity, the credibility of who Jesus is and his resurrection is real. But by embracing that orthodoxy that you might have vibrancy to the glory of God in this world as salt and light, as men and women who are restored image bearers. So what we're going to do is take a journey and let this close friend of Jesus make the introduction. For some, it'll be the first time. For others of you, it's going to be for the umpteenth time. I'd encourage you to read through John's gospel over these next few weeks. Let's start experiencing what he wants us to experience. Now, John's a little different, as Vernon mentioned last week, than the other three gospels. All are describing, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all are describing Jesus, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of apples and John's an orange. And there are a number of different reasons, and we'll expose you to, to those. It's, 
It's the take. He, all of these others had already been written. And so he's, he's kind of filling in the, the gaps. He's providing some music. Uh, I, I mean, there are several examples. He, uh, he doesn't give any parables. He doesn't, because they were already there in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And part of it, I think, is because, and several writers have said this, John viewed Jesus' life as a parable. Basically, as the illustration of what we were meant for as human beings. See, the, the huge thing about Jesus, the most significant thing about Jesus, is that he was the most fully alive human being to walk on the face of this planet since Adam and Eve before the fall. And that's what this son of thunder was gripped by. So let's start going through John's gospel. You guys ready to take a journey? All right, drum roll. Oh my goodness, come on. Have you guys ever been to a basketball game? You can use your feet too, come on, ready? Here we go. Come on, feet, feet, let's go. That's, that's pretty good. John chapter one, verse one, one of the most astounding prologues in all of scripture. Here he wants to introduce us. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I am, I'm excited you're here. So here's John saying, hey, whatever your first name is, let me introduce you to Jesus. In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I, I just want to know, could he write fast enough? Was he impatient, wanting, couldn't write fast? Or maybe he was slowly, letter by letter, just savoring. Bottom line, he paints a portrait in what we know as five verses. He didn't write in verses. We've numbered these since then to help us compare and study. But he writes them with fullness, with intentionality. And I'm sure continually reflecting underneath the enablement, inspiration of the Holy Spirit on what he observed about Jesus. And when he writes this, I'm sure he's thinking several things, but one for sure is that statement Jesus made on numerous occasions, but one time that was recorded in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me can navigate this thing called a human journey and not have to stumble around in the dark. Uh, Jane Richardson of Sutton, Massachusetts, a number of years ago, got a phone call from her daughter. Jane lived at the edge of a national preserve, a forest, a number of acres, but on the other side of that, that section of forest was her daughter's neighborhood, where her daughter and husband and grandkids lived, and Jane got a call at, late at night saying, hey mom, could you come over? We need to take one of our kids to, 
to, to the doctor or something. I'm not sure what the emergency was, but she needed to hustle on over. And it was actually quicker to go through the woods on foot than to, than to drive because of, of this section of preserved land. So Jane put on her coat and she heads out into the dark. Before she does, she reaches into the utility closet right next to the back door that had all these, their, their plug-in rechargeable appliances because she needed to get the flashlight to, to, to head out. So she grabbed the flashlight, heads out into the dark. She's buttoning her coat. She starts on around all of a sudden realizes she's already left the trail. She needs to find her way. So she turns on her flashlight. No light came on, but a noise started. And she immediately realized that instead of grabbing her rechargeable flashlight, she had grabbed her rechargeable vacuum cleaner, her little dirt devil. It was not that helpful in the dark. But you have your favorite dirt devils that you grab, so do I. We have those things that we grab thinking they will illuminate things for us, and they don't. Might be power or popularity, as we've talked about before, or pleasure or money. John says, put down your dirt devil. Put down your titles and your trinkets and your fun fixes. Uh, You know, those things aren't bad, but they're not going to enable you to navigate this thing called a human journey in a way that's fulfilling at the least, but really more importantly, that's glorifying to God. He says, let me introduce you to somebody. Here's Jesus. And in him is life. And that life is is all the light that you will ever need. So what does it look like as we start this journey? What's it look like to kind of put the dirt devil down and and experience his light? I want you to imagine yourself in a really dark room and the alarm goes off to awaken you. And along with that awakening, curtains open in four windows uh, around on one on each wall of the square room so you've got four windows there and as the alarm the awakening is happening each curtain is pulled back and more and more light until all four curtains have been pulled back and you have the full amount of light that's available shining on you and waking you up John is saying that in this prologue he's saying Let his light into your journey. What will that look like? Let's look at those one at a time, going back through these five verses one at a time and looking at four aspects, four windows of his light. And it requires all four for you and me to start this journey appropriately. Window number one regarding the light of Jesus, what's it look like? It looks like supremacy. John says, I want you to get a supremacy and curtain goes back and all of a sudden, He moves from being just this religious mascot to something far different. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. Now, especially if you've never seen this before, it's going to be a little odd. In the beginning was the Word. We talk about the Word. The reason that's there is because Word is how we've chosen to translate it, a very complicated Greek word that was well known in John's day. And it had been known for centuries. 
The word was logos, transliterated in English, L-O-G-O-S. I mean, back in the 6th century B.C., Heraclitus of Ephesus, uh, I, I know you know a lot about him, probably read some of his stuff earlier this morning, but Heraclitus is the guy that said you never step into the same river twice. You might have heard that. He says it's always changing. Everything is changing. Uh, but, uh, and he talked about all, all things are always changing. And in the midst of all the change, what prevents chaos from breaking out? How is there still order in the universe when everything is changing? And Heraclitus' answer was logos, reason a governing force, metaphysical, impersonal. Some of you are thinking, whoa, whoa, we're getting out there. Hold on. Just think Star Wars and the force. And tons of other philosophers would say the same thing. So when John begins, this, by the way, this Galilean fisherman, and some have said, well, that, there's no Galilean fisherman. He would know about Lagos. So John says, in the beginning was the Logos. Every major philosopher of the day would have agreed with him. But then John begins to move in a direction that culminates in what we know as verse 14 that we'll look at, we'll get to in two weeks. And when he said the Logos became flesh. What he's talking about is, yes, there is a governing reason to the universe, but that governing reason comes from a person. It's not metaphysical. It's not impersonal. It's personal. And more importantly, and more specifically, John is saying in his name is Jesus. So for me to put down my dirt devil and to experience his light, I need to... Let John pull back that curtain on that wall and expose the supremacy of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, we start understanding Jesus isn't coming along as my little religious mascot to change the adjective on my census and refer to me as Christian and give me something to do on a Sunday. He is coming not to adopt me as a mascot, but to summon me as a servant to bow in the presence of his supremacy. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image. The Son is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like, John is saying? Same thing Paul is saying here to the church at Colossae. Look at Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Do you know what he's describing there? He's describing the supreme logos that holds all things together. And here I'm saying I need light for my journey. And John says, here you go. His supremacy will be enough for you. A lot of people say that we attached some divinity to Jesus that he had no intent for. (laughs) 
John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham, Jesus told these religious leaders, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and saw it and was glad. Here it again. He says, your father Abraham. Abraham was the founder of Judaism. He was their spiritual father. He's also ours by grafting and adopting, by the way, but that's a different story. Rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. I'm sure John was thinking of this when he's writing this prologue, smiling. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And that word, I am, that phrase, I am, floored them because what Jesus was saying is, I am God. I am supreme over all creation. That's why at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Over and over, Jesus talked about in John 10, I and the Father are one. He wanted people to understand, I didn't come here to start a cult. I've come with a cosmic agenda of summoning a creation that is broken and under the sentence of death back to life. And preeminent in my agenda is you and you and you and you and you and you. And we're not here to vote him into office. We're here to submit before him as the supreme governing ruler over all creation. Thankfully, there are other windows because if it were just that window, I think all we would be doing is cowering. And John said, oh, no, no, I just want to establish. Let's have a high view of Jesus here, not a mascot view of Jesus. But he's for us, not against us. So he opens another window on the the second wall. And this alarm is going off that we might believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God. And by, by believing, we have life in his name. For that to happen, curtain one goes back and his supremacy begins to shine into our understanding of him. But curtain two goes back on the next wall and his creativity shines through. Go to verse three. Almost sat down right there. That would have been really um, interesting. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That pretty well covers it. And what John is wanting to do, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, say, let me introduce you to Jesus. You need light for your journey. Understand his supremacy but also not just embrace that and engage with that, but engage with his creativity of your life. How much of your life does he know about all of it? Why? Because he made you. I, I still haven't had anybody confirm or, or deny or whatever. I don't know if I've told you guys about Charles Steinmetz. And uh, uh, he's the guy that was a friend. He was an engineer, friend of Henry Ford. Henry Ford's the first to uh, mass produce the automobile up in Detroit 
first one to use an assembly line, in other words. The guy that built it was Charles Steinmetz, the engineer. Everything's going great until one day the assembly line breaks down and uh, all of his people, Henry Ford's people, try to fix it. No one can. So he calls up Steinmetz, says, get over here. We need your help. Steinmetz comes and he tours the facility and goes all the way. And Ford is with him the whole way because he's losing money by the minute. And uh, Steinmetz checks this, checks that, and finally comes to a point on the assembly line and says, oh yeah, and leans down and does a couple of things with some wires and does just, just a few minutes and says, that should do it. And Ford said, really? That's it? That's all? And he said, yep. And they flipped the switch and sure enough, everything's going back again. Ford was ecstatic. He said, Charlie, thank you. Just send me a bill. He got a bill a few days later for $10,000. Ford was not somebody to easily part with his money and he wrote him back and said, you got to be kidding me. $10,000, all you did was tinker with some wires. I want you to send me an itemization, itemized bill. So Charles Steinmetz sent him an itemized bill. Uh, first item on his invoice was tinkering with some wires, $10. Second item on the invoice was knowing where to tinker, $9,990. And Ford paid him, sent him a check. He knows you. You know why he knows you so well? He made you. He knows your personality. He knows your frame, mine. And John says, put the dirt devil down. Let him illuminate this journey of yours called a human's journey. Let his light in. Let his supremacy into your life, his lordship. He's not a mascot to adopt. He's a, he's a Lord before which we're to bow. But we bow gladly because he's also our creator. He's our author. He knows us. But there's something else you need to know. And he goes to that third wall. And the, the room's getting brighter and brighter, waking us up from our slumber. And he pushes the curtain back. And he, it's the curtain of his vibrancy the vibrancy of Jesus. I looked up vibrancy in the dictionary. It means the state of being full of energy and life. Go back to the text. Look at verse 4. John says, in him, this is so, what was so unique about him, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In him was life. Not just heart-beating life, not just lung-breathing life, but this life that we've, we refer to as the life of the gospel. A vibrancy. It's the life that he talked about chapters later when he said, having life in his name. Let me tell you what was so, so intoxicating and captivating about Jesus. He's the first fully alive person I've ever seen. Of course, only after time did he realize he's the first fully per alive person since Adam and Eve. This guy now knows how to do humanity. He knows how to do a human being's life. Not just existing, but letting that alarm hit and awakening. To not just exist, but live. On a daily experience. Being fully alive. What's that look like? You guys remember the feeling you used to have in your, in your stomach 
in, in high school, or maybe some of you are in high school, when the teacher says, get out a piece of paper. I used to hate those words. Get out a piece of paper. Pop quiz. No piece of paper, but here we go. What's that look like? We talked about it for three weeks. Oh, living to be, the vibrancy of Jesus is living every day in worship. Every day is a call to worship, to live in awe, embracing the mystery, the majesty of who he is, being fully alive, living with vibrancy, comes not with just from Jesus modeling. Remember, John saw this, but Jesus in, in modeled all of these things and many more. What's B stand for? Brokenness. Jesus engaged with the brokenness and fallenness of this world. And you and I are called to do that, but in light of the hope of the gospel, what's C stand for? Okay, this is only a third letter. By now, you're not even going to be talking down here. Let's go. What's C stand for? By the way, we got bookmarks for free. Pick them up in the bookstore. You can go online to uh, northernchurch.net slash fully alive to get all the notes from, from these creativity. I'm created in the image of God who is a creator, and so I create every day in my vocation, my relationships, my speech, my service, my acts of kindness. I'm walking that day. What's D? Every day I live with a sense of depth. I'm not su- it's not superficial. I'm going deep and substantive in my journey, but it's not just about me. I'm living my life to engage. Engagement of other people with the, the kindness, with the gospel, with justice and acts of mercy and service and outreach and discipleship. But I don't just do it alone. I do it in community. F is for fellowship. We image God as a community. The vibrancy that Jesus came to bring is part of that vibrancy is calling us into community, but not just for ourselves to walk in generosity. giving away everything he's lavished on us. And we do it not rotely, but we do it with our, our hearts. We engage and live passionate. John was a son of thunder. You talk about somebody who lived with their heart. But we're doing it all undergirded with a... Intimacy, intimacy with the Father. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you've sent. So every day I'm relating intimately with him and realizing that every day is one step along the journey. We're doing that as his people. And John said, in him was life. And that life is the light of all men and women. But there's a fourth window that completes the picture. And that completes the illumination in the room, that completes the awakening. It takes my whole life to be unpacking it. But that fourth window is his ability. It's not just Christ's supremacy. And it's not just his creativity that he made me. It's not just his vibrancy that he wants to restore me into the original purpose. Not again, again, not self-improvement, self-actualization, happy clappy for me, a vibrancy that will glorify the Father. By the way, uh, Irenaeus, I've mentioned him before, he was two generations away from John. John discipled a guy named Polycarp who discipled a guy named Irenaeus, and Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, wrote, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is vibrancy. Why? Because Jesus walked vibrantly on a daily basis. But the last one is really that, 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 the, the, the clicker, the catcher. 
He doesn't just say, this is what I want. He says, I will enable you to do it. Follow me. I'll block for you. And no darkness will be able to hold you back. Verse 5, John chapter 1. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You know what it's like for darkness to attempt to overcome you. Darkness does that. And on a daily basis, we're opposed by death and darkness. But Jesus in John 16, 33 says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome. And the the central place in time and space in history where Jesus' ability to deliver what he promises, the central place is that, that thing that we call the cross. It was a violent symbol in those days. It never, it didn't, it didn't become the status of jewelry till after Constantine's day. As one author said, until all the people who had ever seen a crucifixion had died off. But a symbol of what Jesus did to enable you to be fully alive. To pay a penalty for your rebelliousness and mine by dying as the infinite God-man on the cross. You see, my, my sin is a, an offense. But because it's an offense against God, it's an infinite offense. And an infinite offense requires an infinite payment. And an infinite payment will take me all eternity to pay. And Jesus says, I've come to pay that. So he gathered his disciples in an upstairs room on, th- on a Thursday night. It's that night where they had that Passover supper. And John leaned against Jesus' shoulder. And he took some Passover bread. And as an illustration of violence, he broke it. He says this, this is my body broken for you. Now they didn't understand. They didn't know he was about to be crucified. But after the resurrection and during those 40 days of before the ascension, the teaching, they started to realize, oh, that's what that was about. Jesus took some wine and he He poured it and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood. You're going to relate with the Father through me. Your sin will no longer keep you from the Father and will no longer keep you dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm going to breathe life back into you. And so he calls us to do the same. To commemorate the same meal which the church has done over the centuries. We Here we practice at North and what for centuries has been referred to as intinction. You'll come up, you'll be dismissed row by row and be invited up to the front of your section and a fellow brother, sister in Christ will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then you'll take that and dip it. The red liquid is wine, the white liquid, the clear liquid is juice. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you can either partake there, right there, or take it back to your seat. Be intimate with him, thank him. Relate with them. Don't just do this as a religious ritual. Do this as communion with him and with one another. As men and women who've been called from death to life. 
Parents, explain this to your kids. This is the table for those who've trusted Jesus. If you haven't yet, wait till it's real or else become a follower of Christ right now. If you're not able to, to come, raise your hand. Somebody will, will come to you. But worship. Engage. Maybe with the taste of this on your, on your palate, look at those letters and say, thank Jesus that he's wanting to enable you to live a life of awe and not be overwhelmed by brokenness and live in creativity and as a deep person, engaging others, walking in fellowship, being generous, having your heart made new, being intimate with the Father and journeying with a sense of purpose, all because of what this is reminding us of. Let's eat, let's drink, let's worship as men and women who are fully alive.